0: Hello, and welcome to episode number 18 of the American Social Fabric Podcast, titled Letters from the Federal Farmer, Part 5. Hello, once again, to everybody who is a new listener, and thank you for checking out the podcast. I know there are many good options out there, so I appreciate you taking the time to listen here. And welcome back to everybody who is a repeat listener. I truly appreciate you coming back again and listening, as it motivates me to keep moving forward with the podcast here. Now, the purpose of the podcast is to explore those core American principles and ideals that underpin our political system as laid down by the Founding Fathers. Now, we do this in an effort to repair the frayed social fabric of our nation. And I know this is a lofty goal, but we just try and take one small step each week to discuss those ideals and to hopefully rebuild the trust between the citizens of our nation. Now, while there will, of course, always be disagreements over policy, sometimes even very contentious disagreements, it's important that each side at least trusts that the other person is coming from the same shared sense of values, because if that trust is not there, then there will never be any satisfactory resolution. Now, for the past four weeks, we have been going through the letters from the federal farmer to the Republican. The author of these letters is unknown. However, the Republican he's referring to is the New York governor at the time, George Clinton. These are a series of anti-federalist letters, meaning that the author was very dubious of the draft constitution, and he wanted more powers reserved to the states, and... In his opinion, he wanted more liberties reserved to the people and greater democratic representation. Now, of course, his opinions were all cast through a particular lens. And in his opinion, he thought that the draft constitution would effectively do away with state rights, if not in actuality, then at least in practice. So when you listen to what he says, you have to always remember that in his opinion, there effectively won't be useful state governments if the draft constitution passes. Now, of course, history would not prove him right either, as we both still have state governments and those state governments still have quite a bit of power in our current modern America. So the author went about analyzing the draft constitution in four ways. First, he looked at the organization of the proposed government under the draft constitution. And to do this, he looked at the different branches that were created, how the house was formed, how the Senate was formed, how many persons would be in those different chambers of the legislature, the powers of the executive, things like that. And in particular, he had issue with the fact that there were so few representatives in the government for how many people were in the nation. He thought that there would be no way that so few house reps could adequately represent all the different flavors of American society, the different trades, and especially those with little ability to influence policy meaning those especially the poor or the people in the rural parts of the country now second he looked at the powers that were improperly or prematurely granted to the federal government and in particular he had issue with the taxing authorities granted to the federal government and the ability to raise militias and to effectively have a standing army with little checks on their ability to control or legislate either of those items now the third way he looked at it was the unidentified powers the unidentified powers are those that were kind of attendant to the things that were explicitly granted in the constitution. So by this, I mean, in essence, the necessary and proper clause. So like, if they have the express power to do anything they need to tax, then they can also pass any laws necessary to implement those taxing powers. Now, fourth is the powers which are not secured on safe and proper grounds. And by this, he means mostly that there are powers granted that don't have appropriate checks and balances within the government. He covers part of that today, and it has also been a theme throughout the letters. Now, the fifth letter, today's letter, is mostly primarily dealing with how he sees the Constitution should be voted on, debated, and implemented, and kind of his views on what a proper passing of the Constitution would be, and under what circumstances he would support the Constitution. And with that, let's go ahead and move into the fifth letter. So he begins this letter with a strong statement, just as he has in the past couple. He says, I have examined the federal constitution as far as a few days leisure would permit. It opens to my mind a new scene. Instead of seeing powers cautiously lodged in the hands of numerous legislatures and many magistrates, We see all important powers collecting in one center where a few men will possess them almost at discretion. So this quote goes in line with many of his opinions so far. In essence, he sees it as way too few representatives at the federal level who will be an aristocracy and who will control the American political system at the expense of the states and at the expense of the average person. And I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that this is something that many people are still concerned about today, that the federal legislature does not adequately represent or fight for the American people. And until this kind of fear or this kind of concern is dealt with and trust is reinstated, it'll be difficult for the federal government to have the legitimacy it once had in our nation. He then quickly goes on to state his concerns with the checks and balances inherent in the draft constitution. He says, instead of checks in the formation of the government to secure the rights of the people against the usurpations of those they appoint to govern, we are to understand the equal division of lands among our people and the strong arm furnished them by nature, and situation are to secure them against those usurpations. So here he is saying that the checks and balances of our system are really not those in the Constitution but in the strong will of the people to check the government itself. So the author goes on to say that he is not totally negative about the draft constitution, and there are aspects about the draft that he does like. In particular, he thinks the elective principles of the constitution are correct, meaning the principle that people should vote for its government is correct. And he also likes the attempt to split the powers between the branches of government, the attempt to create those checks and balances in the government. However, as we just talked about, he thinks they weren't met, but... He thinks it's like at least going in the right direction and can be amended to properly include these principles. However, again, the major failure in his eyes is that the draft constitution lacks representation for the people. And this is a theme we've talked about all through the letters, is that he thinks it effectively needs to be more representatives representing more aspects of American society. So what are the next steps in his eyes? As he does in general support the move to a federal government, and he has acknowledged the issues with the current Articles of Confederation, such as the credit and trade concerns. Well, he thinks the states need to amend the draft constitution as far as is practical and provide for more democratic representation in line with his points that he has talked about in his letters. He also thinks that there needs to be the inclusion of fundamental principles, as we've also discussed, meaning like the freedom of press, freedom of religion. And in connection with those amendments, the states need to do what they can to incorporate more representation and then the people must decide. Because, and I apologize because this is a long quote, He says this subject of consolidating the states is new and because 40 or 50 men have agreed in a system to suppose the good sense of this country and enlightened nation must adopt it without examination and through in a state of profound peace without endeavoring to amend those parts they perceive are defective, dangerous to freedom and destructive of the valuable principles of Republican government is truly humiliating. It is true there may be danger in delay. But there is danger in adopting the system in its present form, and I see the danger in either case will arise principally from the conduct and views of two very unprincipled parties in the United States, two fires between which the honest and substantial people have long found themselves situated. One party is composed of little insurgents, men in debt, who want no law and who want a share of the property of others, these are called levelers, shayites, etc. And the other party is composed of a few but more dangerous men, with their servile dependents. these avariciously grasp at all power and property. You may discover in all actions of these men an evident dislike to free and equal governments, and they will go systematically to work to change, essentially, the forms of government in this country; these are called aristocrats, moriscites, etc., etc. Between these two parties is the weight of the community, the men of the middling property, not in debt on the one hand, and men on the other content with republican governments and not aiming at immense fortunes, offices, and power. In 1786, the little insurgents, the levellers, came forth, and invaded the rights of others. I think here he's referring to the Shay Rebellion in Massachusetts, and attempted to establish governments according to their wills. Their movements evidently gave encouragement to the other party, which in 1787 has taken the political field, and with its fashionable dependence and the tongue and the pen, is endeavoring to establish in great haste a politer kind of government. These two parties, which will probably be opposed or united as it may suit their interests and views, are really insignificant compared to the solid, free, and independent part of the community. It is not my intention to suggest that either of these parties, and the real friends of the proposed constitution, are the same men. The fact is, the aristocrats support and hasten the adoption of the proposed constitution merely because they think it is a stepping stone to their favorite object, and that would be power. So the author is in essence saying that while the drafters of the constitution may have the best possible intentions, the people in the nation need to carefully consider and debate the constitution because there are two conflicting groups seeking to influence them. The first of those groups are people who want little central control and who want to be able to effectively avoid their debts. And then those who want a strong central government based on an aristocracy similar to Europe. And he is saying that both of these groups are unprincipled and therefore may work together or may be in conflict, but they do want to influence the average person. So the author follows up this quote with another quick reference to the drafters of the Constitution and the people at the Constitutional Convention. He says that the late convention, as a respectable assembly of men, America probably never will see an assembly of men of a like number more respectable. So again, he had made reference to the two conflicting groups in America seeking to influence people. But again, he wanted to make one more comment about the drafters themselves as he thinks they're both respectable and some of the best people America has to offer. So after this, the author moves away from his focus on the draft constitution and his thoughts on it in particular and towards how he sees the ratification process and review process should go. So in the state's review of the draft constitution, he is confident that there'll be many people who are both competent and well-meaning that will have the opportunity to review and debate the constitution. And this does give him some consolation because he feels that if all of these capable men in the state legislatures and at the state level and your general citizens are okay with the draft constitution, then maybe he missed something and the constitution is acceptable. Further, as we've mentioned before, he is much more comfortable with state legislatures reviewing things because he feels they provide a much better democratic representation of American citizens because they are more numerous and they have ties closer to home. Now as to the actual debate itself, both within the state legislatures and among the population in general, the author calls for a well-reasoned and complete public debate by an informed citizenry, and for the unimpeded debate at the state legislatures. He feels that the vested interests, both pro and against the ratification of the constitution, are to do what they can to prevent a full debate. On the part of the pro-constitution side, they will do what they can to push through ratification without full discussion, and those working against the ratification of the constitution will do what they can to obstruct full and public debate and not engage in a good faith effort to amend or work with the draft constitution as it is. So after discussing what he feels is the proper way to debate and to ratify the Constitution, the author moves into a nice summary of what he feels the American citizens deserve from their government and from those elected officials who represent them in the government. I think this is a nice way to summarize and to end the discussion of his letters. He states, Our countrymen are entitled to an honest and faithful government to a government of laws and not of men, and also to one of their choosing. As a citizen of this country, I wish to see these objects secured, and licentious, assuming, and overbearing men restrained. If the constitution or social compact be vague and unguarded, then we depend wholly upon the prudence, wisdom, and moderation of those who manage the affairs of government, or on what, probably, is equally uncertain and precarious. The success of the people oppressed by the abuse of government and receiving it from the hands of those who will abuse it and placing it in the hands of those who will use it well. So in essence, he is saying that the government must be properly secured or we're relying on the good faith of bad people to implement our futures and to run our government. And I don't think many people would think that is a good way to base your government. No, I really do love that quote and his idea there. I think it's the kind of thing you can come back to over and over and use in many different situations. And I think I think I will do that. So before moving on to the good here, I wanted to discuss one of the author's points from his final letter that I think has a lot of relevance today, and that would be his belief that the government should provide a full and fair debate in the legislatures of important legislation prior to its passing. Now you hear a lot of talk today that this is something that lacks in our government, and I, while I can't say exactly whether this is true or not because I don't watch C-SPAN all day or live streams from the House of Representatives, but you hear how many times multi-thousand page bills are dropped on congressperson's desks the day before they have to vote on them. And then you hear about how they don't really know what's in them when they vote on them. And that really makes citizens jaded. And I think this can really cause a legitimacy crisis in the legislature because if the people don't feel that their government is adequately screening the decisions it makes that their representatives are considering the implications of the bills they're voting on and not just going with what they're told to vote on, they don't believe that their legislature is looking out for them. And again, this is a huge legitimacy crisis. So I think this is a problem today, at least if not in actuality, then at least in optics. And we need to move to a point where we have some sort of system where people can actively see, no matter how boring, a full discussion of every important part of any bill. And with that, let's move on to the good for the week. So this week's good comes from Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, entry 10.30. He says, whenever you take offense at someone's wrongdoing, immediately turn to your own similar failings, such as seeing money as good or pleasure or a little fame, whatever form it takes. By thinking on this, you'll quickly forget your anger, considering also what compels them for what else could they do, or, if you are able, remove their compulsion. So in this quote, the author is saying that old adage of walk a mile in their shoes before you judge them, because you have many of those same failings that you are judging in those persons, and I guarantee you that you will be judging their failings harder than you judge your own. So it's always important to remember that you yourself are not perfect, and even when you're judging others sometimes harshly, consider your own hypocrisy in that situation, because it's likely there. And with that, I want to say thank you to everyone who's listened to this whole series. I know five episodes is a lot on this one author, but I think he was a good author. He wrote very clearly. He had good arguments, and I agree with a lot of his points. As I've said before, many of his concerns get dealt with by the Bill of Rights, but they are still valid concerns today, and I hope you enjoyed this series. I'll talk to you all next week.